The climate crisis is worsening dramatically, but the collective response is lacking in ambition, credibility and urgency. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wuthering people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that earn their great honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land, land that was never ceded, always was, and always will be Aboriginal land. We have the privilege of living on the land that they nurtured for millennia before it was stolen. In doing that, their main focus is on nurturing community and their land. The land wasn't there to exploit, it was something that the land owned them and they had a, a, a responsibility to look after it. And we, as we face the climate crisis, there is so much to learn for us in that ancient wisdom. I can't even begin to explain to my daughter how is it possible adults have known about climate change for more than 30 years and still our emissions go up, wrote Sonia Simmons on Twitter the other day. Still we use the most coal, still we open new fossil fuel projects. Every degree of global heating is death for millions. Let it ever be said, we knew. Already 5 million people die every year of global heating consequences. And this will only increase exponentially with every fraction of a degree that we go higher. That's why we're stepping up together and saying it cannot continue anymore. Stepping up together was the title of a, an event, a meeting at Melbourne Town Hall some weeks ago. And we played some of the speeches last week in the Sustainable Hour. It was a three-hour event, and I really believe that there was something, some gold in those speeches. So let's allow the Sustainable Hour listeners to hear more from this meeting. We talked last week about how our democracy has been hijacked, this concept of state capture. But there were many other aspects and many other examples of the action that's happening that we'll be listening to in the Sustainable Hour today. But first, we must hear what's been happening around the world. Colin Market our Global Order of Australia awarded journalist who keeps an eye on what's going on on the planet week after week. What do you have for us today, Colin? Well, I have an unusual one for this week, Mick. It's a global roundup that's almost all taken up from a single article that was written by Saul Griffith, the Australian scientist who advised US President Biden on his multi-billion dollar Inflation Reduction Act. That's the oddly named American response to climate change. He wrote that 2023 had already seen Canada and Europe literally on fire. Heat records set globally with the oceans considerably warmer and flooding everywhere. That's the key uh, to 2023. It is now or never on climate and getting the policy right is critical, he wrote. Australia is about to embark on a response to the Biden administration's signature climate legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act. 
I will first unpack the underlying theory of that change in the IRA, and then I will discuss what Australia could do better. So let's consider the climate context. We know that we are in a climate emergency, but if we continue to slowly shift to electric vehicles, renewable electricity and electrified homes at the current free market rate, we will likely wind up with 2.8 or more degrees of warning. In war times, governments can execute emergency powers that enable them to operate outside of free market rules. The obvious example was the public-private partnership that was developed in the United States during World War II to produce the war materials required for victory. Today, fossil fuel companies and right-leaning politicians may recall at the idea that such a step, they like to keep everything on the slow roll. But I'm in the emergency camp and we are the vast majority of the world's scientists. Based on the early enthusiasm for electrification reflected in the most recent budget, we've reason to be confident that the Biden administration grasps the urgency of the challenge and the scale of response required. It looks like Australia's policy response to the US president's climate agenda will now be in two phases. The first is a narrow trade-based response that will explore subsidies to manufacturing and will likely be announced later this year. The second is a not yet defined climate and economic response that will be largely shaped by the Australian government's climate planning process, looking at each sector, industry, transport, electricity, etc., uh, individually. The US's Inflation Reduction Act was conceived very differently. The domestic economic response stimulus for households and businesses to electrify their appliances and vehicles, and further stimulus to make zero carbon electricity to power it all, were the guiding pillars for the IRA. The process was holistic, looking at all sectors of the economy together. Electrification is a principal tool in decarbonisation, and so all sectors were considered at the same time. I helped to write the IRA, having co-founded a group called Rewiring America with another energy entrepreneur, Alex Lasky. Rewiring America started life as an advocacy group for bold climate action, but rolled up its sleeves when Biden came to power to find ways to meet the 50% by 2030 emissions reduction targets that Biden's climate team had promised. There were two focal points. One, the demand side electrification, that's zero emission vehicles, homes and businesses. And then there was a supply side clean energy, zero emission electricity production. The question was how to achieve the easiest, cheapest and fastest solution. That logic prevailed on the supply and the demand sides. Simply put, this would clean up all the machines and supply them with clean electricity. The gas industry tried to derail this project by 
arguing for similar incentives for gas generators and even gas water heaters. The electrifying climate nerds for the large part prevailed over the gas industry's weak and self-interested arguments. At the end of the day, the IRA probably should have been called the Electrify Almost Everything Tax Act. It comprised tax incentives for producing clean electricity and generous ones for purchasing clean electric machines, including cars, heat pumps, solar panels and induction stoves. These two investments, roughly equal in size, make up about 80% of the energy-focused investments in the IRA. As for the rest, about 10% went to direct in incentives to manufacture machines that produce or use clean electricity, electric cars, heat pumps, batteries, solar cells. But the IRA wasn't all tax incentives. It used US $8.8 billion of direct applied rebates, mostly focused on low and middle income household electrification. Spending in all categories is ahead of schedule, and the estimate of outlay is close to 1.2 trillion US dollars. By any measure, this is a lot of money, and it'll go a long way to meeting the original goals of those working on the bill. Permanent market transformation of the world's biggest energy economy. Dr. Jess Jenkins of Princetown has estimated that the bill will achieve 43 to 48% emissions reductions. I'm a little less optimistic, but I'm hoping that he's right or even underestimating. Now that was the US, now for Australia. Earlier this year, Australian Treasurer Jim Chalmers outlined his vision for government investment and programs, cleverly designed to crowd in private investment that would help deliver social goods, including a transition to clean energy. There is reason to believe that Australia has studied the American model and can now design their own similar but much more effective response. And that, uh, that went on much longer than that, but I'm using that positive, upbeat note to end this roundup for the week, which really is a view of the future. Uh, looking back at the experience in America and looking for it to be adopted by Australia. So that is my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. A couple of Saturdays ago, there was a, a forum held in the Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, its name was Stepping Up Together. Today's uh, episode of the Sustainable Hour is all about that, that forum, a very significant forum as it turned out. There were more people than expected that showed up. It, it, it was an attempt from the grassroots to unite the climate movement around, uh, yeah, around the, the serious concern that not enough is happening in terms of real action on climate in our country, certainly from the government it isn't, and it was to, to work out ways of putting pressure on them. And hopefully what follows today will be the speeches, the very inspirational speeches that chart a course for the future. 
and it's at the the wish of the organisers that it leads. It's not just another talk fest; that it leads to real action. So let's have a listen, and let's have a think about you how you can take part in this future. And also, let's uh, uh, acknowledge and give credit to Robert McLean, who was there with his microphone and who has uh, recorded most of these speeches we're listening to in a nice professional quality. So thank you, Robert, for doing that and for allowing us to send it out to our listeners uh, in the Sustainable Hour podcast. But also you can listen to Robert McLean's podcast, Climate Conversations, where he's playing in each of the podcasts, different of the speeches and commenting on them and so on. So with that said, let's lean back and have a listen to pretend that you are now at the City Hall in Melbourne and uh, speaker after speaker is coming up and giving you a presentation about how we will be stepping up. Great. Hi, folks. Great to be here. Um, my name's Gilbert, some, sometimes known as Gilbert, born in Mauritius. But it was definitely Gilbert in Dandenong. Well, <laughs> when I came to Dandenong in 1968, it definitely became Gilbert very quickly. But that's another story. And um, But the story I want to share today is about I'm, I'm a placemaker. I'm also a community activist community builder. I've been in this space for 32 years with my organisation Village Well and really I want to talk about the emerging story of people and place, yeah? Mobilising community and the thousands of people that I've spoken to over those last 30 years and probably two and a half thousand cities, towns and communities that I've worked with. But in the last three years, three to five years, I've seen an extraordinary swell of positivity, of possibility, even in this despair, yeah? And as my teacher, Joanna Macy, um, says, we're in the time of the great turning, right? An extraordinary time. Who's heard of Joanna Macy? Hands up. That half the people in the room. So when I met her in 1993, it shifted my heart, really, about how we need to see the world as a system, as a living organism, right? Everything is radically interconnected. So those three areas that she talks about moving from that industrial growth society to a life-sustaining society, I want to talk about in, in a little bit which the first one is the holding, and that's going to be so critical in the next now, really, holding our life support systems, right? We're right in it, climate breakdown. I'm not going to give you stats today, but we need to make sure, lock the gate, you know, Extinction Rebellion, and there's thousands of other groups need to mobilise very quickly to, to protect the life support system. The second one I think that I'm passionate about is the working in systems, you know, reshifting our institutions, it's the first time in society that the three major institutions, business, government and religion, their legitimacy has been questioned at the same time. That's radical. So it gives us a little bit of oxygen and space for a new story to emerge for the first time in history. So here we are to mobilise quickly in this space. So these hundred different institutions, health, I won't go through them, government, business, environment, everything needs to be shifted. So we've got thousands of people unlocking those extractive yeah, systems in those, you know, these institutes. The last one is the shifting consciousness, which I think is just as important as anything. We need a new story, right? We need to mobilise everyone who's not in this room <laughs> to a life-sustaining story and get them excited about that story, that it does create an extraordinary benefit to them. There is a self-interest gene out there because most people are at the footy at the moment. That's just where we're at. And we need to make sure we tell an, a story that does nourish life. 
And I remember I used to be general manager of Chadson Shopping Centre because Consumption Palace in the Southern Hemisphere. I had an afro then, lost it all. Then I swam with a bunch of dolphins and I had a life-changing moment, funny enough. Isn't that interesting? Walked away the next day um, because I knew there was something way bigger than me and there was other sentient beings that also had wisdom. And for, for me, as a placemaker, the original placemakers are the indigenous peoples of this planet. They de have deep wisdom of fire, of water, of caretaking and stewarding. So there's the story that I want to tell, the story of regeneration, yeah? We can't do sustainability anymore. What are we sustaining? So we need to move and leapfrog to this regenerative story that's so exciting. I've done this about 100 times in the last three years. Everyone gets excited in the room because they have a say in the process from small towns to small communities, from, you know, community groups or um, country women's associations, soccer clubs. It doesn't matter. What can they do to make a better life, a better community, a better main street, a better town? So really regenerative agriculture, regenerative cities, regenerative finance, regenerative capitalism. It's moving at light speeds, which I've never seen before. So that's the story of our time, folks. Millions of people are moving and mobilising, so we need to join the dots. Not just the climate movement, but the wellbeing movement and a whole heap of other institutional movements. We can't have the climate movement being a separate movement. We need a movement of movements that I'm seeing right now. And I suppose that's where I'm putting my energy, trying to link those dots or those movement of movements. And for me, I'm passionate about cities. You know, we helped save Abbotsford's, Abbotsford Convent and worked on series in the 90s, activated Melbourne's laneways, created the night markets. It was all about creating safe, more just, inclusive, sustainable places, yeah? We all want that. So in, in, the, in the donut economies circle, we want that safe space, yeah? That we all want to thrive in. And when you talk to people, they all want a safe, clean, green, meaningful work and a place for their children to thrive in. It's pretty basic. Every human being on the planet wants the same thing. So what we've got to do is to be, become better storytellers, really. So for me, also, what I'm passionate and I'm seeing is that real movement around participatory democracy in towns and communities and climate emergency councils that are becoming 21st century councils and creating a culture of yes, yes we can, and let's get on with it with small interventions and creating a culture that really mobilises what I call the power of localism. Really, that's the story of our time, yeah? Having been born in a village in Mauritius with, you know, I suppose that's why I do my work. I want to create Mauritius back in Melbourne, you know? Except I had 136 first cousins. That wasn't a great climate footprint. <laughs> So I won't be doing, we won't be expanding the footprints, but really it's about feeling safe, feeling connected, feeling loved, getting on the streets, knowing your neighbours, knowing your shopkeepers, creating that livelihood of slow living, chitta slow, slow city. It's the movement of our time, isn't it? We all get it. The village is in our DNA. We all are villagers, if you really think about it, yeah? You know, we all are in our DNA understood that food, water, the village well, going into the place where we connected was really the key. So that's a little bit of a sexier sell than, you know, at the moment, because when I push my Al Gore climate change hat on, people shut down very quickly. It's a real radical, everyone's noticed that? 
the doom and gloom. So we have to find new languages, but we can't escape from the truth, right? Because we're in climate breakdown. I still wake up, it's one minute to midnight, and I'm hearing the voice of my great, great, great granddaughter speaking to me. I feel emotional. What did you do in this time? What did you do in this time? Yeah? That's all we got to do. Field and, you know, the future generations that are talking to us. They're in the room right now. And being Mauritian, you get really emotional. Because <laughs> we hug and we kiss. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, it's okay to grieve, isn't it? It's okay to grieve. <sighs> you know, it's interesting. We just start, I just started the Epoch Institute. You can Google that. It's a place in South Melbourne. We're bringing people to become citizen activists, you know, because I think the other thing that um, predatory economics and predatory capitalism is really scared of when we stop buying stuff. You agree? I know, I, I ran Chadston for five years, <laughs> far out. So I know that consumption is still the dominant story of all our lives, not people here, but all our lives. And it's, and it's extractive. So what we've really got to do is create that story, yeah? And some of it will be about stopping to shop. That'll just start to dismantle the system very quickly. Watch this space. And there'll be a point in time when you know, you think about it, COVID was just one of the first horsemen of the Anthropocene. There's a few coming at us very quickly. So in that Anthropocene narrative, COVID did have a slither of what I call the four elements of change that won't go away, right? And it takes, you know, 180 days to create a change of habit. So COVID did these four things that to this time and all the communities I'm working with hasn't changed. One is the importance of localism. People got to understand they're local. Anyone agrees? Yeah. yeah, had no choice. Number two was the importance of nature. People started to reflect how important nature was. They weren't at Chadston. They weren't at the footy. They wanted nature. Number three, the radical change of work. You know, work is like the lifeblood of consumption and capitalism, Right. So we stopped working. We were at home, connecting to community, our families. And guess what? Melbourne is now is only a Tuesday to Thursday economy. People won't come back to work on Mondays and Fridays. And it, now they're talking about a, a Wednesday to, to Thursday economy. It's a different world. So our cities and everything will have to be redesigned. So really we're in the crisis of imagination. That's what I think we're in. Yeah. So we're going to have to have a, an extraordinary reimagination of everything we have to go for everything, go for gold and push our creativity and innovation to the max. And we're going to have to be troublemakers a little bit. Um, yeah, a lot. Maybe a lot. A lot. And I think, as John Lewis, the author, says, you must find a way to get into trouble, good trouble and necessary trouble. Back in the day, in the 90s, I got in a lot of trouble because, you know, I planted my verge with food, put tables outside in the street, um, did illegal lacks of love in the laneways <laughs> of Melbourne, got fined. But maybe those illegal lacks of love is where we need to go right now. Yeah? And it is about illegal acts of love. Just get out there and do it and then just beg for forgiveness later. 
but ultimately it is about, we are, we are all placemakers. Place is about the earth. Place is about the spirit of place, yeah? Ultimately, that's what we have to do now. Walk lightly, walk consciously. And it's interesting, we've just formed the first IDG hub in Melbourne, the Inner Development Goals, because the top scientists in the climate change movement have realised, have realised that we can't get to climate justice because we don't have our inner awareness and self-awareness self in place. So the Inner Development Goals of being, thinking, relating, collaborating and acting, think about it, being, self-awareness, all of these things are going to be important now. And we're going to have to really step up in this space of what I call sacred activism, yeah? And fill the hope budget, because the despair budget is just going to go through the freaking roof. And I think young people are the ones copying it at this stage in a massive way. Massive way. So we as elders in the room need to step up. So let's step up and make some good trouble. Thank you. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Um, pay my respects. Great to see Gilbert speak again. I think interesting for me is when I started my environmental life, really, um, it was 20 years ago at the Awakening the Dreamer sort of group and um, with Gilbert, so it's really nice to see you here today. Um, pay my respects to the traditional owners of this land and uh, thanks to all the organisers who did this. And I, I think it is worth publicly acknowledging that um, Robert Patterson apparently paid nearly $8,000 of his own money to hire this venue and facilities which is an extraordinary act of citizenship. Um, but it, it does make... <laughs> it, it, it makes me a little bit annoyed, though, that we are supposedly a democracy and that a citizen has to do that um, so that we can meet. But um, and something that certainly has to be fixed in the future about adequate venues, because we're going to need a lot of talking and planning and we're going to need the venues, easy access to venues to do that. And thank you all of you for being here um, and caring about our world so today is about solutions, but this first section also had a why in it. So I'm going to do a tiny bit of why, um, and I know you're a well-aware audience of why I think, you know, what's wrong, but I just want to highlight um, one aspect. And I guess this is just one string in the bow that we could, could use. And I want to put it to you today, that, um, the question, why is it time globally for a historic, complete reimagining of how we think about security and how we approach security? It's sort of interesting to reflect that security or the right to live is actually a human right and that you're all entitled to it. But I think when you think of right to live, I'm just wondering who goes through your mind. The children, uh, one thing that comes to my mind is the million people who died in the Middle East wars. They all had a right to live, and especially those who were collateral damage. So at a philosophical level, there is a right to life. But also at a more pragmatic level, at a, as citizens and taxpayers, um, who, who pays for our security sector? Who, you pay for it. <laughs> who provides the people, the soldiers, sailor, airmen, intelligence operatives, who provides those people to serve? <laughs> the people. Right? The community grow up their toddler, all the effort of getting them to school and training them and, and getting someone to a level that they will actually pass the selection criteria. Generally, you know, have to have pretty good health and a whole lot of other attributes to get selected. But the community raise all those people. So you pay for it and you provide your sisters, your brother, your nephew or whatever. 
And you do that and you should have a reasonable expectation that if you pay for it and you provide your people, that you would get a sound security policy and your security will be looked after because you're paying a lot. But you're not getting a sound security strategy. And I, I just want to think we should face up to the scale of failure from the security sector, from someone who has come from the security sector. There's two aspects. One, the initiating objective of the whole United Nations was to prevent war. And that has not been achieved. So at the start of this year, French um, philosopher Emmanuel Todd declared that World War III had begun, albeit in a different form. So we're in the early phases of a different type of World War III right now. Last year saw the largest number of violent conflicts since the end of World War II. So that's a dramatic failure. The second failure is the, that the probable death of the planetary life has been announced. And I don't think I need to explain any more to this, this room. So that's what's happened. But worse is the current trajectory. There was an opportunity at 2020 when the Paris Agreement was going to come into effect. And also the US had agreed to withdraw from Afghanistan. In fact, it was Trump in February of 2020 made the agreement with the Taliban and that would happen in May 2021. So the, the forever wars, two decades of forever wars were going to end. The Paris Agreement was at the start. It was a, we could have gone that way full speed ahead into a low-carbon future and peace. And the same as at the end of World War I and World War II, where communities came up with the UN. They came up with really solid ideas to say, let's not do that again. But instead, at the end of our forever wars, what did we do? We went this way. US decided they want to be top dog and take on and break Russia and China at the pivotal moment of climate change. And essentially what you could say our threat posture at the moment is, is a decision to fight for what's left um, in terms of resources and fight for dominance in a deteriorating planetary security, which of course will have devastating impacts on the fragile ecosystems, greenhouse gas emissions, it provides legitimacy for fossil fuel expansion as we're all seeing. And concurrently on the security side, we have a terrifying lack of preparedness. All these major crisis is happening this year, you commonly see the public going, we had no warning in Maui, but there's no sirens or, you know, they weren't ready. So the citizenry are being utterly betrayed. There's no crisis meetings occurring now as all these tipping points are, are going past. There's no contingency planning. And I, I'm saying to you as a security person, you've been betrayed. So we're seeing a leave people to suffer and leave them to die strategy, which is absolutely unacceptable. And if the state cannot provide you with security, and in fact is endangering you and your security, what does that mean about its legitimacy to govern? So it's time for a new approach. And um, perhaps to encapsulate the words, I might talk to someone who can capture it a little bit better than me. I'm gonna play just 15 seconds of a song by Lenny Kravitz. And I might read the words first because it might be a little bit hard to hear them, but let me just uh, read his lyrics and then you can listen to it. He says, we must engage and rearrange and turn this planet back to one. So tell me why we've got to die and kill each other one by one. We've got to hug and rub a dub. We've got to dance and be in love.
Okay, so it's, it's time for a new approach. So let's bring in a new sort of security planner. So my name is Major General Love Earth, and I love the Earth. <laughs> um, okay, so this new security planner, when they survey the, the security environment, the first thing it identifies is that the major threat to our population and people is the hyper threat of climate and environmental change put together. New type of threat, it pre actually presents a warlike capacity for killing, violence, destruction and harm. And it must be understood as a threat because it involves violence and killing. And it also involves hostile intent or conscious decision making to cause harm. The second thing is to understand that the security environment, it's no point considering the dimensions, planetary security, state security and human security separately because they're all completely in inherently entangled. So the new security thinkers have to be pretty smart and integrated in their thinking and think of these all the time. So you can imagine the future intelligence agencies would never think of just state military security without thinking of the follow-on um, impacts. The other aspect to understand about the environment is to read the room in terms of the planetary mood. What do you think the planetary mood is for the non-Western countries at the moment? Well, they want a multipolar world and a free time. They've had a gutful of the colonial exploitation. You know, it was seen with the death of Elizabeth, all these countries wanting to extract themselves from the West as, um, and they're, they're growing bricks. They're not really in the mood for a Western unipolar, more exploitation. So read the mood of the planet and let's take that into account with our plan. Okay, so when, when I talk about a new approach, I call it Plan E, but essentially it is a hyper response to the hyper threat, and it is a concept for a warlike scale response. But I don't use the term warlike scale or Marshall Plan, I use the term hyper response because obviously warlike is quite a, a loaded sort of term. I have actually got a flyer, which I might just see if people can pass um, that around now and take one each, which provides links and some of the detail of the plan, but I'll, I'll only talk about some of the headline features today. The mission of the hyper-response is simply to create a safe path to safe Earth. Its key features are that it's civilian-led, um, a civil whole-of-society mobilisation, every sector, every community. Because it's a security mission, that means the mission has the authority to override certain economic actors, i.e. the fossil fuel sector. And I don't think there's any other way we could override uh, their power. It has to be a strong security argument the overall strategy takes that entangled security approach. So it's a high-level framework to concurrently address planetary, human and state security dimensions. Uh, it's called mission-led, and what that means is that we provide high-level things of what to do, but we don't tell people how to do it. We create the space, resources, common terminology and conceptual framework that allows others, community sectors, to design their own approach and then link it in with others. We actually raise a completely new sort of security force. Um, if you think about the structure of the army and so forth, it hasn't really changed from World War I. We're the same cause. So we have completely new capabilities. A new form of mobilisation with six, six different layers to it. Uh, one is mobilisation in place. So say you're a hairdresser. You still be a hairdresser, but you become part of all the hairdressing industry, working out how to cut hair in the most sustainable fashion and get the toxins out of the things and even imagine new ways of doing it which don't involve travel or something. 
Uh, soft mobilisation is the same way as if, for example, you joined a soccer club or chess club and you meet a few times a week. Uh, a big one is around veterans and mobilisation, which is actually a bigger issue in the US and other countries than ours. There are stacks of veterans around the world that need have a lot of difficulty integrating back to the civilian world. So we create a career path for them that they go to work in the hyper-response force and actually offers a bit of healing for people um, who have suffered moral injury from the forever wars and so on. Conceptual aspects. We basically completely reject this leave them to suffer, leave them to die strategy. We reject the violence of complacency and we affirm that everyone has that right to live. Uh, it is a sacred thing. Now, all forms of planetary life are sacred and should be protected. So we affirm that we're adaptable, creative, strong, honourable, resourceful, kind human beings. We can stop being ashamed of ourselves and start being proud of who we are and what we do in the face of the hyper threat. Now we can clean up our damn mess. We can stop polluting this beautiful planet and take responsibility for the harm we've caused. We make reparations quickly. We do the right thing. So we are people who can change. We are people who are good and we are people who are brave. We don't turn away and we look at the hyper threat in the eye and we say, we'll take it on. We have a planetary security peace treaty, which enables all nations to focus on countering and containing the hyper threat. There's a new legal framework, ecocide, etc. I'm sure people here know about that. Um, I just want to highlight another idea. In military circles, you have a term called vital ground. Has anyone ever heard that term in warfare studies? So vital ground means that whatever you do, you must protect this vital ground. So we talk with ecologists and marine biologists, etc., and designate certain areas as ecological vital ground, like the Amazon, some existing marine protected areas, and a lot more forests. And for at least five years, they are the vital ground. They get prioritisations in terms of uh, surveillance technologies, protection, military protection, and they are protected at the most highest priority. There's five operations. Probably haven't got time to go through all those right now. Um, but now I just want to turn to the last thing is, well, how do we do this in the context of safe capture and so forth? Okay, so I've got two answers to this question. Plan E involves a year of planning, a full year, across all communities, all sectors and so forth. And that is in getting readiness for Plan F, which is the Fast and Furious 4, where four years we just go for it, like our, you know, those backyard blitz cleaning shows, like that for the planet. But because it's a bottom-up approach, we need to give the time and space for people to do deliberate, careful planning. Instead of being caught on the back foot and trying to plan while you're getting flooded, we prepare. And we have to prepare people to help run the Plan F. So what we would lobby for is that the federal budget um, allocates funding for that Plan E contingency planning. And I'm just thinking that 1.5 million was given to the middle arm development. Imagine if that 1.5 million was allocated to support proper supported planning. The second one we call for is for Australia to establish a planetary crisis peace treaty in our region, especially with China. So that's if lobbying worked. Now let's get real and acknowledge that maybe it doesn't, as we all know. So what I guess I'm thinking I might be able to do from my side, and I'll be putting it to you to see, get feedback on this idea, is that I used the rest of 2003 to try and prepare material and courses. And the next year, I'd start it myself and start running, train the trainers in plan E and the hyper threat concepts, teach them the, the plan, the common language, teach them the deliberate planning methods, how to run a war game, 
of it. And in fact, I did one of them with ASEAN postgraduate students earlier in the year, which went, they seemed to enjoy, um, or not enjoy, but it was enriching for them. And then the train the trainers then take that and do that with businesses and sectors and so forth. And the other one is that that group could actually also start doing our own diplomacy. And just to, as one example, is that we could connect with the Australian Chinese community and work very closely with them to engage with China on this. And it's just worth remembering that John So was the world's popular, most popular mayor here, Melbourne Town Hall, in 2001 to 2008. And he was Chinese, born in China. So the citizenry reach out to China. Um, so in general, I'm sort of throwing out the idea, we're talking about where does the movement go. I'm wondering about at this late stage in the game, how much time, I know everyone's probably the same as me, I've, I've knocked on so many doors. Plan E was developed four years ago. I've been knocking on doors for four years, I've got nowhere, well, except for the community. So I'm sort of sick of the establishment. <laughs> Um, so I'm sort of thinking that everybody's spending a lot of energy knocking on doors and perhaps for three months we said let's not do that, let's put the energy and that time that we have into working out how we work as together as a community and start um, building capability. Um, so that's it. I just want to end with one thing for me, which is I'm going to play a bit more music. It's 40 seconds, and I'm just hoping that this music captures the vibe of what Plan E could be like. And I just invite you to close your eyes, listen to the music, and just imagine what could be if we decided um, to launch a completely new approach to security, which respects, treats life as sacred. Thank you, Mel. Um, yeah, so my name is Karen King. I am a pediatrician here in Melbourne. Um, and I see children both in the hospital when they are sick and need to come in, as well as in the outside clinics when they are well. Um, I'm also a very active member of Doctors for the Environment Australia, so DEA, which is working alongside many of the other medical bodies that you might be familiar with. So Australian Medical Association or the AMA, um, CAHA, the Climate and Health Alliance, and many of the other training, the medical training bodies that help train all of the doctors and, and medical students coming through. Um, and all of us are aware of the ongoing and worsening climate crisis and are trying from the health standpoint to um, really bring attention to this issue and to governments and saying that there are significant health impacts if we keep going as we are going. Um, so I first, um, I was always sort of a bit of a greenie, just to give you a bit of history, but it really, climate change really became a focus for me in 2012 when I learned that children really suffer, of, of all the people who suffer, the children suffer the most um, in their health and well-being. So we know that almost 90% of the death and disability caused by climate change occurs in children. Mm -hmm. 
And we know that a quarter of the deaths of all children in the world are due to some sort of environmental risk, so directly or indirectly impacted. So malnutrition, you know, from food insecurity, diarrhea from poor quality water, malaria, respiratory diseases, and pneumonia. Those are the five, essentially five, four or five top causes of death in children in the world, and all of them are related in one way or another to how we are polluting the environment and to climate change. Um, so I became involved in Beedaloo in May, actually, when Louise first reached out to me to try and build a movement um, and to help get her health message out. And I'm so sorry that I haven't been involved earlier, but I'm so grateful to all of you who really got onto it straight away. And I do think here in Victoria, um, we're, I, I just wonder if we're not so familiar with the fracking issue because it's a bit of like out of sight, out of mind. I mean, in Victoria, we've had a, uh, you know, a moratorium for over the last 10 years. But really, in Queensland, Northern Territories, WA, it is all in their backyard and it's still right front and center for them. So I'm really here today to talk with you and to answer any questions about health impacts of fracking and, you know, of gas and fracking and of climate change in general, um, and hoping that the health argument can give you another approach or another way to frame your attack, um, um, I wouldn't say attacks, but your arguments against the government, just to give you another way in, all right? So why don't we start with Louise's video, if we could? My name is Louise Woodward. I'm a pediatrician working in the Northern Territory, and I'm speaking to you today to ask for your help. Our government has green-lighted fracking the Beedaloo Basin, which is a beautiful area in the outback just south of Catherine. Fracking the Beedaloo Basin will increase Australia's emissions by 20%, just this single project, putting all of our health at risk in terms of the climate crisis, but also putting the local people of the Northern Territory at risk due to direct health impacts of fracking. These occur due to contamination of groundwater as well as the air around it. This puts people at risk of things like asthma, pregnancy complications, as well as stillbirth and preterm birth. These are complications that we already see so much in the Northern Territory. We have some of the worst health outcomes in Australia and we cannot afford to make them worse. To make it even worse, the Northern Territory government is planning to open a massive gas processing facility in Darwin called Middle Arm, where they will process Beedaloo gas um, and turn it into LNG for export overseas, as well as petrochemicals. Now, I'm sure everyone knows that petrochemicals are dangerous to human health. They are planning on making these only three kilometres from population centres in Darwin, putting people at risk of cancer. We know that people living within five kilometres of petrochemical facilities have a 30% increased risk of leukaemia. People living near gas processing facilities also suffer lung infections, asthma, heart disease and increased rates of death. 
why is the federal government funding this project to the tune of $1.9 billion and why is the Northern Territory government facilitating projects that are actually going to harm their local people? Why are the Northern Territory people being sacrificed for the sake of fossil fuel company profits, particularly in the midst of a climate crisis. There is no safe way to frack the Beetaloo Basin and certainly no safe way to process any more gas in the midst of a climate crisis. Up here in the Northern Territory, we need the help of everyone in Australia to come together and tell the federal government that this is not okay. We need to deal with the climate crisis urgently and we need to stop the Middle Arm Project and Beetaloo fracking if we are to have any hope of addressing climate change and if we are to protect the people of the Northern Territory from the known health impacts of these dangerous projects. The legacy of contemporary society in less than 300 years is the ecological and climate emergency we now face. We ask all Australians to practice deep listening to Indigenous traditions so we can learn to care for country instead of destroying it. It is imperative to give attention to climate justice for First Nations communities whose land is at the forefront of resource extraction. War babies and baby boomers, like me, face an agonising irony. Unlike our parents who spent their childhood during the Great Depression and then fought a world war, our lives have been blessed with free education, full employment and hedonistic freedom. Most of us have had it so damn good compared to our parents. The climate emergency is the horrible sting in the tail as we shuffle towards not just our own death, but the shameful legacy we leave to our children and grandchildren, the prospect of ecological collapse and the extinction of our species. No other generation has had to face their finitude with the knowledge that we are passing on a desolate and perhaps unlivable future for those who come after us. We cannot sit idly by. While there is breath left in our bodies, we will strive to negate the apocalypse. We must help where we can. This is the mantra of the old codgers at Vote Climate One. Teal community independents have generally picked the relatively low hanging fruit associated with liberal held seats. Although these campaigns are vitally important the more difficult task ahead is to target and win marginal Labor-held seats. In the federal election, Vote Climate One only had the limited financial resources to target one seat with an on-the-ground campaign. We chose the Labor-held seat of Canberra to match our internet reach with mail-outs, core flute signs and face-to-face -face interaction. Our limited analysis of the three booths we manned on election day and the overall Canberra result suggested that traffic light voting assisted the election of David Pocock for the Senate.
this voting guide was mailed out to everyone in the electorate. In Victoria, the Greens missed out narrowly in challenging Labor for the seat of McNamara. With the benefit of hindsight, if Vote Climate One had targeted McNamara with an on-the-ground campaign, we may have moved Labor closer to minority government. Vote Climate One is keen to assist climate groups in any marginal health seat across the country with an on-the-ground campaign using the traffic light voting system. Nevertheless, I would like to make it clear that many other groups like Vote Earth Now, VCAN, and local groups like Lighter Footprints in Kuyong do a brilliant job with internet and on the ground campaigns using climate voting cards. It's not a competition. We all complement one another. I would like to put in a plug here for Rob Eisenberg and Vote Earth Now. Rob can't be with us today because he's in New York attending the United Nations Science Summit as the convener of digital democracy for climate action. The tagline for this initiative is everyone, everywhere, all at once. Vote Earth Now also featured traffic light voting on their website during the New South Wales state election. A lot of people, especially youth, are disengaged from politics and mostly interact by mobile phone. Vote Earth Now allows them to participate in democracy via their mobile. A new digital electorate feature will enable users to engage their MP on upcoming legislation in real time while simultaneously monitoring MPs' performance. Vote Climate One advises voters nationally at federal elections in all 152 seats. We also advise voters in every seat, in every state election and by-election. In other words, no one is left out from guidance to help the best outcome for climate. When the dam wall of public opinion bursts, Vote Climate One will be on hand with ready-made advice which can empower people to change the way they vote. This meeting was called to help us all rejig our strategic plans in the face of the rapidly unfolding climate emergency. Our strategy, as Mark Diesendorf has outlined, must penetrate the two roadblocks to effective action on climate. State capture and our enslavement by and worship of flawed neoliberal economic theory. I'll finish by mentioning these three tactics, plenty of other things, but I'm mentioning these three, which you can confidently step up to because they are fit for this strategic purpose. First, your involvement with a climate oriented political campaign, such as the election of a community independent. We may have a federal election within 12 months, not far away. Secondly, joining the family-friendly, 72-hour, 3,000-strong blockade of the world's largest coal port. And, uh, and thirdly, helping with Vote Climate One's Reaper project.
so I'll finish by saying the big question is what can we all do as individuals about the climate emergency? The answer is to become less individualistic. Said Rob Bakes from voteclimate1.org.au which, as you could hear, is beginning to gear up for the next federal election. What you have been listening to in the Sustainable Hour today is an excerpt of this event called Stepping Up Together, which was held on the 9th of September in Melbourne Town Hall. We listened to Gilbert Roskust, followed by Liz Bolton, Karen Kiang, and Louise Woodward. And they were all recorded by Robert McLean from Climate Conversations. Language warning. Here are some of my very top tips that we can all utilize if we're to truly work together to save our planet. Number one, recycle. I know it's an obvious one, guys, but please do make sure that you are conscientious with your recycling. Number two, eat in season. Small change with a very big impact. Number three, wake the fuck up. There are mass forest fires, lethal floods and crops shriveling all over the world. And not just in brown and black countries that rich people hate, that their ancestors looted, but in Western countries that they like and live in. And is this your fault because you forgot to put out your recycling bin last Tuesday night? No, it's the fault of the 1% who are just laughing at us. The rest of us are told that we must reduce our carbon dioxide emissions to two tonnes per person per year if we are to reach global targets. And yet Roman Abramovich used 34,000 tonnes last year to run his private gigantic yacht. And it's not just the direct impact of the super rich. It's a way in which they use political and cultural power to block effective change. Did you know that the idea of the personal carbon footprint was created by an oil company? They're trying to transfer blame to us to make us consumers rather than citizens who might organize themselves and agitate for political change. So shove your carbon taxes up your arse. They just hurt poor people. What we need is wealth taxes. What we need to do is to take the yachts and jets off the billionaires. What we need to do is get rid of billionaires. What we need is a revolution. And number four, tote bags. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. Very inspirational material here from the Stepping Off conference at the Melbourne Town Hall. We will be talking more with these people about their next steps in the coming sustainable hours. And also, we should be looking forward very soon to creating a similar kind of talk fest, a real party for all these guests that we've had in the Sustainable Hour. Do you realize that we've had more than 1,600 guests in the Sustainable Hour over the last 10 years? And uh, imagine if we could get them all in one room. What an interesting event that would be. We, we probably can't do that, but we can call people together for a, a celebration of our 10-year anniversary of the Sustainable Hour, and we'll be back with more about that. In the meantime, be the difference. Be the difference.
many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Watching